It is time to play the game of movie trivia. Question, what is the most important one word quote in motion picture history? I can see some of you getting ready to raise your hands. Some of you would say that it is the last word from Orson Welles' classic film, Citizen Kane, Rosebud. But no, sorry, that is not the answer that I am looking for. Let's talk about one of the great American movies of our time, The Graduate. And here's to you, Mrs. Robinson. Jesus loves you more than you will know. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Stand up From Religion News Service, this is Martini Judaism. For those who want to be shaken and stirred, I am your host, Rabbi Jeff Salkin, Rabbi of Temple Israel in West Palm Beach, Florida. We are recording this in the middle of the Harvest Festival of Sukkot. Now, in fact, there was either nothing Jewish about The Graduate or there was everything Jewish about The Graduate. It is not only that it starred Dustin Hoffman, who is about as Jewish as it gets. It is not only that Simon and Garfunkel provided the soundtrack, which is also about as Jewish as it gets. Benjamin Braddock, the alienated graduate, could have been Benjamin Bronstein. Mrs. Robinson could have been Mrs. Rubenstein. The Graduate was a totally Jewish movie. Let's remember the movie together. Ben Braddock is a product of Southern California's upper middle class. He has just graduated from college. He is lost. He does not know what he wants out of life. At his graduation party, a family friend approaches him. I want to say one word to you. Just one word. Many of you know the word that comes next. Are you listening? Just so you. Plastics. Plastics. There you have it. Perhaps the single most important one-word line in all of motion picture history. Plastics. If you are of a certain age, you remember that we use that word to describe people, and it was not a compliment. She is so totally plastic. Plastic described people who were artificial. It also described people who could twist themselves into being whatever others thought they should be or into being what society thought they should be. To be plastic is to be infinitely malleable. Don't get me wrong. I believe in being flexible. All over the world, Jews have been celebrating the harvest festival of Sukkot. During Sukkot, we dwell temporarily in these ramshackle huts or booths that we set up, and we shake various species of biblical plants the largest is the lulav, which is the palm frond. What is the greatest quality of the lulav? It bends. It is flexible. The Talmud asks the question, why does a scribe, someone who writes a Torah scroll and other sacred documents, why does a scribe use a quill made out of a reed? Because it says... A person should always be as flexible as a reed and as unyielding as a cedar. But here's the thing. You cannot be so flexible that you forget the core of who you are. When that happens, you break. 
or your soul breaks. We are going to be talking to two friends who have been human lulavs. They bent, but they did not break. We are back with Martini Judaism for those who want to be shaken and stirred. And I am Rabbi Jeff Salkin. I am so lucky. I have two good friends who are joining me today. Two friends who have lived through experiences that bent them, but did not break them. Cody Laskin and Andrew Levy. I'm Paul Brandeis Rauschenbusch. This week on The State of Belief. I felt like if anyone was going to be speaking up, it was going to have to be somebody like me. Faithful conversations around sexual orientation and gender identity in Texas with Auburn Peterson of Another Story. Also, getting ready for the 2024 vote with Adam Friedman, organizing an election strategist at Interfaith Alliance. The State of Belief, where religion and democracy meet. Distributed by Religion News Service Podcasts and available on your favorite podcast app. So, Cody, you have mentioned that when you were a kid, you were the girl with stomach aches all the time. In high school, you were the one who knelt down and tore her ACL. You were the one who had to miss class because of seizures. You were the girl with the dog. You were the girl in the wheelchair with the dog. You're the girl who couldn't come into work because she's still in the hospital. How did all that stuff shape you? How did it shake you and not break you? Uh, So I will say right off the bat that having symptoms and being sick that young is a very jarring experience, Um, especially without having a name to it. I didn't actually get formally diagnosed until a little bit later. And it felt like for a while, once I did finally get diagnosed, it felt like I was getting more and more symptoms and more and more diagnoses. And at a certain point, I just had kind of accepted that this was what my life was going to be, that I was going to keep getting sick and it was going to be different things and there was nothing I could do to stop it. And it it's a very jarring experience to have to think about uh, that when you're so young, like most of my friends never went to doctors at all. And I was in and out of doctor's offices all the time. Um, so it for sure was a very shaking experience. What did you learn? I think the most important thing that I learned was patience. It's never a quick process to get diagnosed and it's not a quick process to find a treatment that works. It's trying one thing and that thing may be working or not working and then trying another thing it's physical therapy multiple times a week. It's it's a very slow process. It taught me patience and it taught me compassion for others uh, because a lot of the things that I have are invisible or considered invisible. So if you were to just look at me, you might not know of all of the things that are happening. And it, it kind of highlighted for me the that we never really know what's happening to other people we don't know what's causing things to happen to them. So being compassionate um, to everyone. You said to me that all the years that you were in and out of hospital made you fluent in a language called doctor speech. What is that? So I consider doctor speech when a 
doctor, any kind of doctor, comes in and tells you the medical terminology for what is happening, which some doctors are more inclined to do. Like when a doctor comes in and says something like, you have inflammation in your terminal ileum, and that's not necessarily something that everyone would just know. And I am by no means a doctor. I have not been to medical school But at this point, I've been around doctors enough that I can generally tell what they're trying to say. And I've been able to use that, fortunately, for friends who have had to go in to doctors or get surgeries or whatever it is. And they say the doctor came in and said this thing. What does this even mean? And I've kind of gained the ability to say, okay, this is this is what the doctor actually meant um, and translate it to normal English. You said something beautiful. You said, and I'm going to read this because it's so eloquent. We start out in this perfect place where all our needs are met and are birthed into a world filled with chaos that can lead to the greatest of joys and the equal but opposite amount of pain. Can you say more about that? Yeah, so when we're when we're in the womb, we have everything we need. We have all of our nourishment. There is no pain. You're just kind of being created. But once you're born, you're thrown into this weird environment where you have to ask for the things that you need. And there can be pain that can happen throughout your life. The first time you fall and skin your knee, it's the worst pain you've ever experienced because it's the first time you've experienced it. And I am a firm believer in the more pain you've felt, regardless of what that is, the more joy you can feel on the other end. If you've experienced something horrible, then I think it makes the good things feel even better because you've seen the other side of it. Did anything good come out of all of this? I think it has. I I think that the person that I am today is completely because of all of the things that I've gone through. I can say for sure that my life didn't go the way I thought it was going to when I was a high schooler. I thought I was going to be a traveling stage manager and I was going to be a nomad and just flit from city to city. And I wasn't able to do that. I had to change my plans and it was devastating at the time, but I was able to meet my wife. I was able to gain friendships that I probably wouldn't have been able to maintain I was able to join an amazing temple um, and and kind of delve deeper into that. So it didn't feel like that when all of this was happening, when I was in and out of the hospital and I I didn't know what my future was going to be. But now, looking back on it, it looks like this is what was going to happen and it has made me a good person, a person that I'm proud of. You're reminding me of a terrible joke. Would you like to hear the joke? Of course, always. So there's this kid who has a somewhat ridiculous relationship with his parents and comes Hanukkah, he goes out and his father tells him in the backyard, there's his Hanukkah gift and it's a pile of manure. So he gets a shovel and he starts digging. His father says, what are you doing? And he says, I'm figuring that underneath all of this, there must be a pony. (laughs) That's the way I look at life. There must be a pony. Mm Mm-hmm. Thank you for being a human lulav. You bent, but you didn't break. We'll be back to talk to Andrew Levy. Bend me, shake me any way you want me. 
That was the American Breed singing their song, Bend Me, Shape Me. It was released in 1967, which will wind up being a very significant year in American popular culture. If you just stick around, you'll find out why. We are free associating with the theme of bending. So we're talking now to Andrew Levy. All right, Andrew, you talk about the two Mount Everests in your life. I like that image, by the way. We'll talk more about mountains in a moment. Everest number one, tell us. Well, Everest number one happened in um, 1998 after um, suffering a traumatic brain injury um, between my junior and senior year of college. Um, And it was a terrible shock to the system. I fractured my skull. I, um, I fell off a ladder um, and pretty much had a full impact with cement head first. And um, I was in a coma and it was terrible. And I was in the darkness. I could remember being in the darkness, um, but I knew that my family was by my side because I could smell my mother's perfume my mother's Cartier perfume. It was something that was was pretty strong. Um, one day I opened my eyes and that was when my life totally changed. Um, and it there's a there's a long story to it, but I was instructed by all the therapists and the doctors that I would need a one year off to do all the appropriate therapies like vocational therapy, occupational therapy, physical therapy, you know, to get back to normal. But I would have none of that. I decided I was going to go back to college uh, three to four weeks later, that I was going to graduate on time, that I was going to be normal. And that's exactly what I did against all the, um, against all the advice from the professionals and even my parents that were somewhat terrified of my decision, but they didn't get in my way, ironically. Normally they would. I was very surprised. They didn't get in my way. So that's um, that was my first Everest. Everest number two, as if that wasn't bad enough. Actually, I didn't realize about Everest number one until I was in the throes of Everest number two. Um, Everest number two occurred in the um, spring of 2020 during the height of COVID. While COVID began to peak, um, that previous January, I noticed a little lump in my hip and um, it was my hip. So, you know, I didn't think anything of it. But instead of shrinking, it started getting a little bigger, a little bigger until in kind of late March, it got to the point where it started to really bother me when I was, you know, putting on pants or you know, tightening my belt. And I thought maybe it's time to do something about it. But because of COVID, you know, they weren't letting any non-COVID related cases into hospitals. So, um, but it got big enough where I sent some pictures to a friend of mine who's an oncologist. And he said, this can't wait till after COVID, which was a little ominous and a little jarring. Uh, The next morning he texted me to lumpectomy specialists. He had already made the appointments for me. And I went to one and they immediately said, 
This is Hodgkin's lymphoma. You know, it, it's, it's probably malignant. And I was thinking, how could they tell from just, you know, feeling it? And the answer was, I felt this thousands of times. I know what this is. So I go to the second doctor who gives the same exact diagnosis and all of a sudden I've got cancer. And it was shocking beyond belief. I'm going to bring Cody into the conversation so that we can do this as a triad. Cody, it might be hard for you to remember this. Andrew, it would be easier for you to remember this. I'm wondering, was there a Cody 1.0 and then a Cody 2.0? Was there an Andrew 1.0 and then a 2.0, the before and after Cody and Andrew? How did this transform you and what kind of new identity did it give you? Cody? Uh, so I would, I would definitely say yes, but I think the mile markers for it were a little bit different. Like the Cody 1.0 was me with symptoms, but no idea what was going on. And then the Cody 2.0 was having a name to it and having a kind of treatment plan, but rebelling against it because I was so upset that I had to deal with this. And then 3.0 would be the prompt getting worse because I wasn't listening to the things that I was supposed to be doing because I was rebelling. Um, and, and now I think we're on like a maybe four or 5.0 where I've got a, a good swing on how to handle everything. Um, and I, I have changed tremendously from the beginning of all of this. And I think it has, it has made me a lot stronger as a person. I can handle more things because I already have. So I know that I can. And I, I, I think it has made me probably a more, a, a kinder person, I think would be a good word, a kinder person through it all. Since I've only experienced you as strong and kind, it's hard for me to imagine who that person was before that went, all went down. Andrew, how about you? Gosh, for me, it was definitely my 2.0 moment was after cancer. You know, I never really sweat the small stuff you know, when I was, you know, going through life. But after cancer, that was when I stopped sweating the medium stuff. And that is when you really, your primary concern is your family, your life, your security, where all the medium stuff doesn't mean, doesn't matter anymore. And it's only the essentials, caring for people, caring for institutions, doing things that you can that are above and beyond what most people do and making that your simple and sole priority. Um, and in many ways that has de-stressed my life. And if I could write a book called, you know, not sweating the medium stuff, I'd be a billionaire. What I feel, and I'm not sure if it's right, is that I think you have to go through this type of late life trauma or, or for me, it was late life to, to fully understand not sweating the medium stuff. Because when you explain it to someone, never really makes it through. And, you know, and I think it's just because of my experience that, um, you know, just happening in the last few years that I just let all that medium stuff just fall off my shoulders. And that's what I do. So we're talking about this under the aegis of 
a religion publication, an online publication. So let's let's bring religion into this. Let's start with God. Where is God in this picture for the two of you? Uh, for me, I will say right off the bat, there there have been a couple of times where I've been sure that I was going to die and I had accepted it and I'm not, which I personally am very happy about. Uh, but I have mostly found God in the people around me. I would never think that this was done on purpose. I don't think that I had to be sick because of some plan, but I do think that it happened. It was a natural variant that happened in me. Some of my stuff is genetic. It was bound to happen eventually. And in exchange, I was given these people who have supported me and gotten me through it and and made it all seem a little bit easier. So you found God in other people. Yes. So Andrew, what about for you? For me, it was... When I had my first traumatic, when I had that traumatic brain injury, they were wheeling me into the hospital about 3.34 in the morning while one of the top um, highly regarded brain surgeons in the country happened to be leaving. And he saw my case, immediately turned around, came back in, and without notifying um, my parents, decided to save my life. And he decided to take the responsibility upon himself. And that, to me, is a godly moment. Um, If that had not happened, I would have surely died of a stroke. Um, The blood was filling up in my brain. I had a subdural hematoma. That, to me, is a moment that, you know, it's like a missile hitting a missile. It is simply a moment of godliness you know, uh, of an angel just being right there at the right time. Although I'm in remission, I still feel like at any moment cancer could come back because that is how cancer works. I feel like I've got a bit of a scarlet letter C on my back. Um, After those first two um, visits with these lumpectomy specialists, the first and really only thing I thought was, Whenever I heard that someone else had cancer, I was never like, woe is me, you've got cancer now. My biggest fear for them was that they could possibly get cancer again over and over. And that to me, that was their scarlet letter. It was almost like a life sentence. And it is a life sentence now that I have it. But I, so being able to manage that has to be, is, is so difficult that I think godliness has, is part of how inadvertently or unconsciously I can, I can manage that situation. I can manage that feeling of, of, of knowing that it could come up. How else could a human ever bear that without godliness in their life? So Cody experienced God through the presence of other people, as did you, but you kind of up the ante there, Andrew. You experience God in the presence of other people who might not necessarily have been there, but through coincidence or an act of God or an angelic presence just happened to be there to save your life. It's every time I think about it, it is remarkable. It is just the odds are so infinitesimal. Um, 
and for him to take it upon himself without contacting my family because there wasn't enough time. He just knew by the way I looked. He just knew by the way I was acting, the way my body was moving in the, in the gurney. He just knew it, wheeled me right into the ER. You know, I mean, it was, he saved my life. I mean, if, if he hadn't been walking, crossing my path that very second, I probably wouldn't be sitting here. I want to back up to something you just said, Andrew, because it's something that I've been thinking about. About a week and a half ago, I wrote a column on Letty Cotton Pogrebin's new book, Shanda. Now, Shanda is a Yiddish word for something which is shameful. And she did what I call an act of family archaeology by going through her family narrative and digging out things which in Jewish families would be considered a shanda, a shameful thing. And one of the things that she mentions is her own bout with cancer. And she reminds us that it wasn't that long ago that our parents and grandparents would only speak of cancer in hushed tones the big C, the C word. I'm wondering, in both of your cases, to what extent you experienced what you went through as a Shanda, as a shameful thing. Cody, how about you? I mean, so my, the diseases that I have, I think people might have heard of them, at least a couple of them, they might have heard of them, but nobody really knows what they are. Uh, So I didn't quite have that stigma. The stigma that I had was when they stopped being so invisible. Like when I was in a wheelchair for a year and having to rectify that with people who had seen me walking and now I couldn't. And I almost felt ashamed that there was something that I should be able to do, but I wasn't able to do anymore. Or when I had a port placed and I had a tube literally hanging out of my chest and walking around and being this young person who is still able to walk around and still able to work, but had to have this medical device attached to her all the time, felt it felt wrong at first. It took me a while to accept that this was just a thing that I needed to be okay and that it was what it was and it wasn't something to be ashamed of. How about you, Andrew? Shonda? I felt no, I felt no shame. It was just a solitary battle for me. So, um, and I did feel a tremendous amount of weakness at times when halfway through my chemotherapy um, uh, regimes and treatments, I kind of looked at myself like I was a battlefield. And halfway through my treatments, I felt my um, soldiers were getting tired. The, my ammunition was running low. As I was waiting, this was right in the middle for my next chemotherapy treatment, I got a text from a friend and they just sent me something that completely and utterly changed my, changed my point of view. I got back on the horse and I just got back as the warrior. But I, I don't think I was lucky I never felt shame. I, um, if anything, I had to dig deep into the reservoir of, of perseverance as Jews that I think we have 
um, that's different than any other culture and community. To what extent do you think your experiences bending and not breaking have been emblematic or metaphors for Jewish history? I will kind of play off of what you mentioned, Andrew, about your body being a battlefield, because I felt that way a few times. It feels like this never ending uphill battle of trying to figure out what will work. And then at the last second, it changes and that doesn't work anymore. And you have to switch to a different med or switch to a different whatever it is. And I feel like that is where I feel the closest to Judaism is this flexibility and this was a thing that was working and we were okay and we were safe and it is no longer working so we need to leave or we need to defend ourselves or we need to figure out a new solution and kind of being able to take something and run with it on the fly and come up with something else is where I feel like I most identify with it. So it's resiliency for you. Yeah. Andrew, how about you? Well, I think um, when I, when this was first happening to me, like it, when I had cancer, I really felt that perhaps us as Jews, we have something in our DNA, something that from from the survivors of the Holocaust, our our our, um, our ancestors, through that battle, and through that. Um, overcoming of the darkest moments, that maybe that lies within our DNA as Jews. And maybe we have that. I think we do have that. When I, when I went through what I went through when I was younger, I wasn't any special. I wasn't, at my, you know, I, I didn't have, um, I wasn't an especially confident individual. I just, I just acted. It was a reflex. And when that happens, you have to think, where did that come from? And I genuinely believe that it comes from, you know, when I whispered in your office, I was like, I was whispering because I I, I, I wasn't sure if I was going to make a, I didn't want to make a comparison to myself as someone that was tantamount to surviving the Holocaust, but I whispered it and then your eyes opened and I remembered you saying there are authors and, and writers that write just about that topic. And then you mentioned that book, Secondhand Smoke, written by your friend about how subsequent generations of the Holocaust, how, how, how they're affected. And I genuinely believe that that's something that we're armed with, that us as Jews that we have. Um, and that, that's my, that's how I feel. I, I, I can't explain it any, I, I can't explain it otherwise. That's secondhand smoke written by Thane Rosenbaum, who is uh, the child of survivors. It makes me think that one of the most controversial subjects in modern science is this whole notion of epigenetics, which is that trauma gets passed down from generation to generation. And I spoke about that on Rosh Hashanah. I wondered if the trauma that Isaac experienced on Mount Moriah when his father almost sacrificed him has created a kind of genetic imprint within the generations of Jews. But I also wonder if something else is true. If there is epigenetic trauma 
is there also epigenetic resilience? In other words, is, is this something else that has been built into who we are? I definitely agree with that. I think that that is um, that is something that comes down. It's ingrained, and I, I genuinely believe that's how one, you know, that's how we persevere. That's that that's something that is in your is in your DNA. Because I've seen people that have not persevered or maybe not um, recovered with with the same gusto um, or the same, you know, the same hubris. So I do believe that's the case. I, I would agree as well. I think there's something, I think there's something to be said for our history doesn't necessarily define us, but it can inform us to a certain extent. I would like to believe that because of uh, my ancestors, because of our past, because of all of that, that I have a little bit extra gusto to get through everything. I can't, confirm it completely but i it is kind of comforting to to think of it that way to think that maybe the reason why i'm able to get through this is because i've i've got this extra part of me that's just really resilient and can handle anything in, in many ways cody i think that not knowing what was going on must have been an added anxiety you know at least i knew what i was going through a traumatic brain injury cancer you were going through something that was that was undecided and that wasn't identified that must have been terribly scary yeah it and it was it was hard to get answers for most of them a lot of them are very rare so nobody's heard of them ironically the easiest thing to get diagnosed with was crohn's disease so not having a name to the monster that you're fighting every day is incredibly anxiety inducing so cody gosh that's i've i've heard um of my aunt had something that couldn't be explained and it was so horrifying i mean it was it was it was crazy i mean she suffered for three to four years before passing but they couldn't give they couldn't find out what it was they couldn't give it a name i mean it was horrible I mean, I can imagine as a young individual that must have just been off the charts. Yeah, I wouldn't I wouldn't personally recommend it. But I will say I have um, ironically been placed in the paths of people who had the same symptoms I did. And I have been able to be like, hey, you should ask for this specific test. Like, go talk to your doctor, mention your symptoms, see if they can give you this test. And they've been able to get diagnosed from that. So another good thing that's come out of it, but it's it was not it was not a good situation i mean that just adds to the pain of the actual situation is not knowing mm-hmm. it's pretty heavy duty now i've spent much of my life reflecting on the whole notion of plastics that original word from the graduate Now, I'm thinking that perhaps the original word plastics in the graduate, the piece of advice that the friend offered Benjamin Braddock, was not, in fact, his way of saying that Ben should be infinitely malleable. You need to remember that the mass production of plastics was an innovation in industry and in chemistry in the late 1960s. 
And so perhaps the friend was merely saying, hey, Ben, plastics is going to be a thing and you should get in on the ground floor. So if the movie had been made in recent years, it would have been, I don't know what, Bitcoin? We laughed when we heard the word plastics because plastics was the ultimate synthetic material. Southern California, where the graduate took place, we saw in those days as the ultimate synthetic place that made synthetic things ephemeral entertainment. Nothing was real in the world of the graduate. So in the late 1960s, we used the word plastic as a derogatory term. It meant that someone was synthetic, like the material itself. Everyone who's listening to this will agree that our two guests, Cody Laskin and Andrew Levy, are about as unplastic as you can imagine. The opposite of plastic is real. We heard real. But this whole thing about plastic reminds us of something else. Malleability, not so good. But flexibility is much better because ours is a faith tradition that holds out the model of an Abraham, of prophets, of the Maccabees, of Spanish Jews who refused to submerge their identity totally, Russian Jews who resisted the dominant religion of Marx and Lenin. No one has ever come up to the Jewish people and said that magic word, plastics. Yes, we've learned to be flexible, especially since the pandemic, and with flexibility has come resiliency. That's the lesson of our two guests, Cody Laskin and Andrew Levy. And Andrew, I've got one last word for you and for Cody as well, if she wants to listen. I was taken by your description of these twin crises as Everests, Mount Everest, different slopes of Mount Everest. But here's what you need to know, my friends. In the Jewish tradition, mountains are not there to be climbed. They're there as symbols of revelation. Moses encounters God on Mount Sinai. The Torah goes forth in its real teachable form from Mount Zion. We are a mountain people, and I'm not talking about the Catskills and the Poconos in North Carolina. Mountains is where we get the wisdom that we need. And with that bending and not breaking, you two have been great purveyors and teachers of wisdom. And I'm hoping that those of you who are listening to this are right now identifying your own Everests, your own versions of Mount Sinai, Mount Zion, where all of you have received the Torah of resiliency. This has been Rabbi Jeff Salkin of Temple Israel in West Palm Beach, Florida. I want to thank my two guests, my two friends, Cody Laskin and Andrew Levy, for not only sharing themselves, but sharing their time and their efforts. Of course. Thank you so much for having me. Me too. Thank you so much for having me also. This has been Martini Judaism. 
for those who want to be shaken and stirred. This is the podcast based on my regular column of the same name, Martini Judaism on Religion News Service. That's religionnews.com. Thanks for being with us. We'll talk to you again soon. Shalom. <laughs>